Minding Your Business. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and today we've got back with us Chris Perosi of the Tech Gods, and he's going to answer some questions that we had uh, from our last show with him. He was on about a month or so ago, and we had a tremendous amount of questions come in that we didn't have time to get through. And so today he's going to answer these questions, and he's you know also able to take additional questions. So if you'd like to call in and ask a question or comment about today's discussion, please feel free to do so. You can call into our switchboard, and our number is 347-855-8831. And before we begin with the program, I just want to remind everybody that this broadcast is a service of the Law Offices of Peter J. Lamont and that none of the information provided on today's broadcast constitutes legal advice, nor does it create an attorney-client relationship. Chris, thank you for coming back and for answering the questions that people have for you. Thank you for having me, Peter. I appreciate it. Uh, if you wouldn't mind reminding everybody about uh, your website and how they can get in touch with you before we start uh, getting to the questions, that would be great. Sure. My company is the Tech Gods. Uh, we're located in Lancaster, California. Uh, we do work all over the country. Um, the website is uh, www.thetechgods.com, and that's with dashes in between. So it's T-H-E-T-C-H-G-O-D-S.com. Uh, the phone number is 661-524-5140. And, uh, you know, that that's actually a, a cloud-based uh, phone, and it goes right to my cell phone when I'm on the office. So, uh, you know, you can call me at any time, and I'll be happy to answer your questions. All right, that's great. That's very high-tech. Very good, Chris. Um, all right, so last time we talked about business tech and, and how businesses are utilizing technology to either make their lives easier or to derive more revenue because they're not spending as much time doing things that computers and, and technology can do for them. So out of that discussion, we've got a number of questions, and they kind of – range from general computing questions down to more specific technical questions. So let's just start with the first one. Um, this first question is, uh, I think, a question that everybody has uh, questions about. What's the, the best free or cheap antivirus software to use? Uh, this person uses Avast, and it doesn't seem to work well with Outlook and keeps disabling. So, okay. you know, People, I guess everybody's looking for free options, and there are a number of them now, right? Um, yeah, there's actually a bunch of them, and, and Avast is one of the ones I recommend. Um, the problem here seems to be not the uh, actual uh, antivirus, but um, the way it's configured to work with Outlook. Um, certain antiviruses, including Avast, will actually scan each, each individual message as they come in, which tends to lock up Outlook. It doesn't really work well with Outlook. Um, and you can disable that, the email scanning specifically. Um, the files will still be scanned because it's going to scan every every file on your computer regardless. Um, so it's not going to scan them as they come in, but as you open them and as you work with them, you know, then it will go ahead and scan them. And then it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue as when they scan them on the way in, uh, you know, as you receive the emails. Um, so Avast is, is a very good free antivirus. Um, in fact, uh, just this week I had a problem with a computer where I, I ran several other antivirus softwares against it and, uh, you know, it didn't find the error and I could tell there was still, uh, you know, an infection on the machine and I ran a bath against it and sure enough it picked up two infections that weren't found by any of the other ones. Um, so it's really just a matter of configuring your, your uh, antivirus to work with the things that you're using. Um, and again, you can always disable that email scanning because it's not necessary. The, uh, the 
files are scanned regardless of the fact that their emails are not. Um, they're just double scanned if you have the email scanning on. So you can turn that off and that'll work okay. Um, that being said, uh, some of the ones that I recommend, uh, you know, pretty much constantly are uh, Avast, AVG, um, Microsoft Security Essentials. Um, the three of those are great. Uh, the thing I like about Microsoft Security Essentials is that it was written by the makers of the operating system. You know, most most cases, uh, you know, you're using a Windows machine. And uh, Microsoft Security Essentials, um, it doesn't seem to slow the machine down at all when it's running. Uh, it doesn't seem to cause any of the other problems that antivirus scanners tend to cause. Um, but again, Avast and AVG are two great uh, scanners as well. Uh, they seem to uh, pretty much pick up everything. You know, on any given day, any of them could miss a, an infection that you know one of the other ones might catch, because when you when somebody writes a virus or an infection, you know they they send that out and uh, you know it might go to a million people before these companies even know about it. You know, so they have different uh, you know different things in the software that'll actually look for suspicious activity rather than a specific file. But once the companies know about the specific files that are out there, they can you know write they can write code to go directly after those files and, uh, you know, keeps you a lot safer. But again, anything can, you can get a virus, no matter how much security software you have on your computer, you can still get an infection, you can still get a virus. All right, now that's, uh, that leads to another question. Uh, as far as, as free software versus the pay software, something like uh, a Norton or, what, what's another big one? Kaprikoski is a big one, right? Yeah, uh, Kaspersky is a really good one. Um, you know, the, the thing about the paid ones is that they generally have so much overhead with them. Um, and, again, you know, even with the paid ones, you can still get the viruses. It doesn't really matter whether you're paying for it or not. You can still get the infections based on what you're clicking on. So, uh, you know, the, having those, you know, first of all, creates an additional expense, which, you know, isn't really necessary. And then, uh, you know, the other problem is that things like Norton and McAfee, they tend to lock your machine down so tightly that you can't do everyday activities that you need to do. So, you know, I've had customers bring me a computer. They're like, oh, I, you know, I'm trying to do this with the email. It's just not working. I don't know what's going on. I think I have an infection. I take Norton off and everything works great. You know, so it, it's actually the the, uh, the antivirus that's causing the problems, you know. <laughs> that being said, you know, most antiviruses don't cause problems, but two of the biggest offenders that, I, that I've seen are, are Norton and, and McAfee. Um, you know, and they have better days than worse days as they change the code. You know, it's such a dynamic thing. It changes every day. But, uh, you know, certainly I've, I've run into problems and, and I've taken Norton off and, I, and I've had no problems or I've taken McAfee off and then, you know, there's no more problems left on the machine. So uh, I don't really recommend those two, especially because they're the most expensive, um, generally speaking. Uh, I, I really don't recommend... With... I'm sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, I was going to say, I really don't recommend paying, um, you know, especially any large amount of money for an antivirus because the free ones do work really well. Um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, your you're net savvy and, and, you know, whether or not you're going to open that email that says, hey, we tried to deliver you a package, but if you just give us all of your personal information, we will be able to deliver it. You know, if you don't open that email, you're not going to get the virus, you know? Right. Now, some of those, those Norton and, and McAfee, they always seem to come bundled with other sorts of security programs that we don't, you know, in our business, we don't find necessary. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. Yeah, basically, um, you know, what you're talking about is the, uh, you know, Internet security suites and things like that. Um, you know, it's nice to have, I recommend that, that all my clients have not only an antivirus system on the computer, but an anti-malware, anti-spyware system. Um, there's a, a difference between them in, in that viruses tend to attack 
files and they try to break things and they try to corrupt your operating system and things like that. Whereas spyware and malware and things like that, um, what they try to do is they kind of eavesdrop on you on what you're doing and they uh, they say, oh, you know, he was searching for boots yesterday and uh, you know let's put him put this ad up there for uh, for UGG boots since he was looking for boots yesterday or you know he was looking at purses for his wife and uh, you know he he got a we're going to put up an ad for coach purses you know um, so that's what the spyware and the adware and things like that do. Um, so it's good to have the two separate scanners. Now, most antivirus scanners have sort of built-in anti-spyware, anti-malware, but it's kind of like using a general contractor to do all of your construction work. You know, it works, but, you know, you're better off hiring a, a specific plumber and a, an electrician and, and things like that. Um, so that's why the, the anti-malware, anti-spyware scanners come into play. Um, they're just not as complete, you know, when they're bundled in with the uh, antivirus software. All right, now that's actually another question that somebody has asked. Why do I need spyware and malware software? So we talked just a second ago about a difference between malware and, and spyware and the difference between that and a virus. And I think a lot of people just confuse the two and say, oh, look, I'm getting these ads. It's all a virus. But there's a right. distinction, definitely, right? Exactly, yeah. The, the uh the majority of infections on computers today are, are spyware, malware, adware. Um, very few are the true virus variety. Uh, you know, the, again, the viruses, their intent is to do some harm, such as deleting files or corrupting the operating system, things like that. Um, what we really see a lot of is uh, a lot of Trojan-type infections where you, you get something bad by accepting something good. You know, you want a, a piece of software that might do something and say, oh, yeah, I'd like to download this. And, you know, somewhere on there, there's a little checkbox that says, also download these other five things, and one of those is a, uh, you know, is a piece of adware, you know, and it, it's not trying to do anything really malicious to you, although a lot of them these days, uh, you know, do try to get your personal information and things like that. But most of the time what they're doing is they're spying on you. Um, you know, if you uh, happen to go on your computer and, and, you know, get quotes from GEICO, the next day you might find a bunch of pop-up ads for State Farm and Allstate and things like that. Um, you know, stuff like that isn't inherently bad, but the problem is that it's using your computer's processing power to do that. And, you know, so you're trying to do something else, and it's saying, oh, let me report back to these guys what he was looking for, and then they give you a specific ad and things like that. And so it slows your computer down exponentially the more of these things you have on your computer. Um, yeah, there, that's, you know, that's there's, what you're There's, you know, uh, there's malware. Check, yeah, go ahead. Uh, is, is that you mentioned the, the tick boxes. And a lot of times people have come to me and they've said, well, wait a minute, how is this legal? How is this software company doing this to me? This is illegal. And, right. you know, we talk about the word spying, and that's in, in effect what they are doing. But mm -hmm. from a legal perspective, as long as this information is disclosed in any of the end-user agreements that you get when you download a piece of software, most often it's deemed by courts to be legal. And, and so it's right. not something that they're doing illegally either you know you mentioned that it's not necessarily malicious it's also not illegal right so it kind of forces right, the, it's just the a trick. User. Yeah, it's just like a bait and switch exactly right you've got to be aware of what you're doing i mean nobody sits there and reads those giant disclaimers on mm -hmm. on the end user licenses right but they do contain information that can bind the user to certain you know limitations or terms right Right, or, or allow, you know, malicious software to be sold on the computer, basically, you know, with their consent is the problem. 
you know, that's that's the problem with uh, you know no matter what kind of a scanner you have on your computer when you give something permission to run you know it circumvents that it says you know you, I'm using your permissions to go ahead and install and run this you know and and once you've done that your your antivirus can't really do anything about it. Right. Now we talked about some of the free virus programs. Are there free malware programs out there? Yes, there are. There's uh, two that I highly recommend. Uh, one is Malwarebytes, uh, which is uh, M-A-L-W-A-R-E. B-Y-T-E-S, uh, if you just Google that, it'll come right up. Uh, the, their website is malwarebytes.org. Um, also, Super Anti-Spyware works really well. Um, that one actually has some nice tools in it, especially for advanced users, for uh, for fixing things once they get messed up. Um, but, yeah, again, that was Super Anti-Spyware, so if you just Google that as well, uh, Super Anti-Spyware, all is one word, that'll come right up as well. Um, but those are two really, really great free uh, anti-malware, anti-spyware uh, Scanners. They both do basically the same thing, even even though one is named malware and one is named spyware. They they do the same type of thing. Um, both of them offer uh, paid versions. Um, I've used them. They they work well. Um, you can generally get away with the free versions and not not have to worry about anything um, as long as you're vigilant about actually scanning your machine. Um, you have to actually run these things, you know, once a week or whatever it may be. Uh, you know, the, the paid versions run in real time, which is uh, a little bit better for you. You know, depending on how worried you really are about your security, um, you know, it's it's not, not a bad idea. They're not terribly expensive. I think they're like $20 a piece or $25, um, you know, and that's, it, it's worth doing that. Um, but again, I, you know, I recommend to most of my customers to just go ahead and use the free versions because they work really well um, as long as they are vigil, you know, vigilant about running the skins. Um, one other one that, uh, you know, kind of covers everything is, uh, it's called Hitman Pro, and what it what it is is it's a second opinion uh, malware virus scanner. Uh, so it covers viruses and malware, and uh, it doesn't run exclusively on your machine. Um, what it does is it actually runs and it, it checks any kind of suspicious activity, and then it takes those suspicious files and it sends them up to the cloud, where they're again scanned by you know five or six different virus and anti malware and anti spyware scanners. Um, the beauty of that is that, you know, you're hitting it with a bunch of things at once. So, like I was saying before, you know, sometimes an infection gets out there and one company gets the code out to fix that before another company does. So here you are, you're putting it up to the cloud, and the cloud is scanning it with, you know, five or six different scanners, um, so you have a better shot at actually finding things. Um, and because it's just looking for suspicious activity and not specific files on your on your computer, it does a more thorough job of uh, actually finding the files whether or not they're always suspicious or not, when they get to the cloud, you know, that's another story, but uh, it does find the files more quickly. Um, that one is a, a free for 30 days, and uh, then it's uh, $24.99, I think, or $24.95 for the year. And uh, that's one that I, that's the one thing that I actually pay for on my own computers, and that's called Hitman Pro. And if you Google that, uh, Hitman is one word, and then Pro after it, um, you know, that'll come up, and, and you should be able to find that pretty easily. Uh, it's the one thing that I do pay for on my, on my uh, you know, home and office computers because I feel it's worth it. It's a three-computer license for that price, uh, and it really does a great job. All right. Now, Chris, we talked before the show that you were mm -hmm. going to put some links on your website so that people yeah, can download actually, uh, some of these things. I have a lot of these questions kind of uh, pre-answered, uh, you know, with um, – you know, with links and things like that. Uh, it's not on my, my website blog quite yet, but it will be uh, hopefully by the end of today. Um, and then it will have, you know, links as far as where you can go to get these scanners and, and things like that. Oh, that's great. All right, now, while you were talking, a question came in from a live listener, and their okay. question is, 
how can these free antivirus programs, these companies, offer their services for free and still have quality um, you know, people looking at, at writing new code for viruses that are just being you know, created? Do you, do you know how that works? Well, you know, a lot of people are, are really um, in this for the benevolence of it. They want, you know, they want computing to be a safe, uh, you know, safe environment for everyone. Um, there's actually a guy, Lawrence Abrams. Um, he used to work for Microsoft, and uh, he writes a program called Combo Fix, which is one of the most popular tools, you know, for any computer tech to use to fix a computer. Um, and he updates that thing, you know, sometimes three, four times a day. And he just does it, you know, for the donations that he might get and, uh, you know, things like that. It's never, you know, it's never something you can pay for. It's not something you can actually say, yeah, I want to pay for a combo fix. All you can do is send him a donation. Um, but he does it because he used to work for Microsoft and he just kind of got sick and tired of, uh, you know, all the, uh, the security holes and things like that. And, and, you know, he was smart enough to be able to fix it all. So, uh, you know, he writes this, this thing called combo fix. And like I said, it's, it's not really something that, a, you know, an average user would want to use to fix your computer. But, uh, you know, computer tech, most of us use that that tool to fix computers. Um, it works really well, and it's it's always free. Um, you know, certainly, you know, there's a lot of us out there that, that send a donation or two to uh, Mr. Abrams, and uh, you know, take care of him like that. But uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that just really want to want to help. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's websites uh, where there are forums where you know users walk you through individual problems, and they they stick with you, and they send you tools to run and things like that. Um, and they're mostly volunteers. Um, you know, they they just uh, a bunch of smart people that really like what they do and, and you know really like to help people out. Um, that being said, these companies that do it, you know, things like Super Red, Spyware, Malwarebytes, they all got into it for the same reason. But of course, businesses have overhead and they have to uh, you know they have to pay their bills. Um, so they all offer these paid versions. But um, like I said, you know, what they really rely on is that most people don't realize that the free version, you know, can really get them by and it will be fine. So they end up paying for it, you know, which which isn't a bad thing for some of these companies like Malwarebytes and, uh, you know, APG and, you know, Microsoft Security Essentials. They do it for free because uh, I think it's because they're, it's their operating system and they were kind of tired of getting the bad rap. So they uh, they said, okay, well, we're going to create this thing. We're going to give it away for free. That way people go, oh, it's not really Microsoft Windows that's got the problem. It's, you know, this spyware that I have on my computer, and they run this thing, and it fixes it, and uh, they feel better about it, and they feel better about Microsoft. So there's a lot of different reasons why these companies do it for free. Um, but, again, you know, a lot of them are, are trying to get you to uh, to purchase their product. Um, when I recommend those three free ones, uh, ABG, Avast, and uh, and Microsoft Security Essentials, I generally recommend Microsoft Security Essentials first because they never charge. There's no paid version. It's not even an option. It's it's the full version no matter what you buy, you know, no matter what you do, that you can't buy it. It's a, a free version. Um, Avast and ABG, they, you know, they'll post up messages, hey, you know, you, you have the free version. You can really get a lot more, uh, you know, protection if you get the paid version, you know, which is true to an extent, but uh, it's generally not really necessary. Um, you know, so they kind of badger the customer about trying to buy their software. And, uh, you know, I guess, they, like I said, they have to stay in business. They have to pay their bills. So uh, that's why they do it. And I'm sure they get enough people that pay for it that, you know, it covers everything. Um, and that's the thing. There's just so many computer users, you know. And if you ask anybody what they're using, you know, their the top four answers are going to be, uh, well, maybe their top six answers are going to be Norton, McAfee, Kaspersky, Microsoft Security Essentials, AVG, and Avast. So with the millions and millions or actually billions of computer users that are out there, um, you know, they can pay their bills if only a small portion of them actually pay for the software. They can still, you know, stay in business and keep doing what they're doing. Gotcha. And and it really, you know, 
know, for people that are concerned about quality, I've also used some of the free programs, and I, quite honestly, have gotten better results with some of the free just because it's not so cumbersome right. as something like a, a Norton Suite. So just because it's free, the ones that you're recommending, people shouldn't shy away from because sometimes exactly. – you know, people just say, oh, you get what you pay for. But in this case, it's not its not that simple. Right. In fact, generally speaking, the, the more expensive ones, like we were discussing earlier, you know, they tend to lock your machine down. They, they tend to be more of an annoyance than a, than a helpful thing. You know, the, uh, the free ones just do what they need to do, and they kind of stay quiet in the background, you know. Right. All right. So that's good. Let's move on to something a little more technical. Um, okay. This came from a, from a, I think it was a doctor's office. We bought a small HP wireless printer for our office. It does a great job, and the ink is inexpensive, so we bought another. We can't seem to distinguish between the two on our network. If we hook both up, even though they have distinct IP addresses, when you print, all the jobs go to one printer. Is there a way to fix that? Um, yeah, there is a way to fix that. There, there's a good chance that when they set them up, they just use the default names that uh, you know HP gives their printer and didn't change anything. Um, Alternatively, uh, you know, in the printer setup, there may be, uh, you know, it's either on the computer that they're connected to or in the printer setup on the individual printers. But there's probably a duplicate name somewhere that, uh, you know, is being referenced in both places. Um, you know, a, a tech would have seen that when they when they set it up, but, you know, somebody with not a lot of experience setting that up, you know, might not notice that, and then suddenly you have this problem where it's a duplicate name and you're sending it to one printer and it's going to uh, the, the wrong one. Um, the IP address is... Uh, you know, an important part of the setup, but if the if the share name is not set up correctly, um, it can really make, uh, you know, it can make that sort of an issue happen. Um, the idea is that you want to have an individual share name that's descriptive enough to not only name the printer, but the location as well. That way people know when they when they print to, you know, the HP 5150, for example, you know, it's not just the HP 5150, but it's the HP 5150 by Joe. Or the uh, you know in a larger office it might be the the accounting HP fifty one fifty or the uh, the HR fifty one fifty. So you want to be descriptive with those names so that people know not only you know that, that they're printing to a specific model number printer but the actual location of the printer as well. Um, basically, what what you do to fix this um, you know if if it's on the printer itself, then you need to refer to the documentation for the individual printer to change the name. Um, it's not really something that a, a small company or, you know, even a large company for that matter should should spend a lot of time on because, you know, competent tech could fix it in maybe a half an hour or less, um, you know, even if there's something really weird going on or, you know, maybe a little bit longer if there's something just kind of odd, you know, computers sometimes there's odd things that go on and it's kind of outside the realm of reason and logic, but uh, <laughs> in some way, shape or form. But, uh, you know, the point is if you, if you find yourself spending some time trying to fix this, you know, call call me, call another tech, you know, call somebody local. Um, you know, it's probably an issue that can be fixed either remotely or, um, you know, with a uh, remote connection to the, to the computer or if it's directly on the printer, then, you know, tech can walk somebody through it on the phone. Um, you know, since we're familiar with this kind of work, we can pull up the specs on a printer and, and find where the change is really, you know, really quickly versus a user who might look at the documentation for two hours before they go, oh, yeah, that's where it is. Yeah, that's where I have to change that name. Um you know, so like I said, we're used to it, so it, it's not really worth trying to do yourself unless you, you can do it pretty quickly. Um, but that being said, you know, if you wanted to change it on the printer itself, if you refer to your documentation for the individual printers, where you set the IP address, there would also be a name uh, in there, and you can take a look at that and, and, you know, figure out where to change that. But again, it's going to vary from printer to printer. Um, if these are 
computers, uh, printers that are set up through computers. In other words, they're you know initially hooked up to a USB cable to a to a computer and then you know set up that way, which some of them are. Um, then it would be under the uh, the printers. Uh, you know, if you go to uh, printers or printers and faxes, depending on your operating system. Um, you can right-click on that and go to Properties and then go to Sharing, um, and then, you know, you can change the name in there. But, again, you know, I have all this on the on the blog. I know it sounds complicated when I'm just speaking it, but uh, if you could read it and follow the instructions, you know, it would be a lot easier. So this will all be on the blog either later today or, or you know, at, at the latest tomorrow. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll put pictures up there of all the, uh, the different things you need to click on and things like that. But, again, if it's a printer-specific issue, if it's set up on the printer in the network configuration of the printer, then you're going to have to find it through the menus of the printer, which might be a little bit difficult for somebody who doesn't really have that technical uh, knowledge and a technical, technical back, background. So, uh, like I said, it would be better off just really calling somebody. You know, you can, they can fix it in less than a half an hour, no problem. All right, that's good. Thanks, Chris. Um, getting back to something that we touched on earlier, mm-hmm. this cloud computing idea. There was a question about cloud computing. What is cloud computing? And you had talked earlier about virus programs and, and cloud. So what is the idea behind the, the general principle of a cloud? What does it mean? Well, the, the cloud has been around, you know, for years and years and years, and they just started calling it the cloud in the past year or two. Um, but basically the cloud is the Internet. There's no uh, no real distinction between the Internet and the cloud. Um, the distinction comes in actually how you use it. You know, uh, most of us are used to going on to Google and uh, Googling something and, and, you know, getting whatever information we need or, uh, you know, finding a, uh, a user forum where questions might be answered and things like that. Um, and that's, you know, one form in a very rudimentary kind of way of, of what the cloud is. But, uh, you know, when, when we talk about business use of the cloud, um, what we're really talking about is, is things where you're not storing your information locally, um, you know, whether it be that uh, you have a hosted email system, um, you know, most of us have uh, some sort of, you know, free email somewhere, um, you know, an MSN account, a live account, a Gmail account, Yahoo, any of that stuff. That's technically a hosted email system. You're not storing that information on your computer. You're not, uh, you know, keeping those emails. You're not routing those emails to different places through your computer or your server. It's all hosted somewhere else, and all you're doing is viewing it on the the Internet, which is a hosted email system. Um, Basically, you uh, you can set that up so that you can use Outlook or, uh, you know, any of the other email programs, Thunderbird. Um, You can use any of that stuff to view that email as well, but you're still not holding that information on your computer directly. Uh, It's all stored somewhere else. It's all controlled somewhere else. Uh, When you want to make changes, you have to call someone else, and they they make the changes. Um, The beauty of that is that you don't have to have the equipment on site to go ahead and and do it. So uh, generally, you know, when a company, uh, say, 10 to 20 users wants to set up uh, an, an email system on the computer, um, the proper way to do that would be to buy a server, um, you know, and go ahead and set up an email exchange server. Um, and that would, you know, allow you to push the emails to your Blackberries and all the, the stuff that most businesses use, you know. Um, but the thing about cloud computing is you can do all that on the cloud, you know, for like $10 a month per user, you know, and, and things like that. I mean, I'd have to check the exact prices, but, you know, just to give an example, um, you know, for like $10 a month per user, you can set all that up and not have to purchase you know, a $10,000 server to run it. You know, it's it's all just being taken care of somewhere else. Um, you know, and then you just have uh, someone like me set it up for you, and, uh, you know, then, then the cloud takes care of it. You know, they have the server out there. They have the software out there that runs it. They worry about the licenses. They worry about the size. You know, say 
you have like a kind of a seasonal business where you have, uh, you know, 50 employees during the summer and then you have only 10, you know, in the winter, maybe it's landscaping or something like that. Um, you know, you can change the size of it dynamically like that and you don't have to carry that size all through the winter. You could just, you know, drop it out and then, uh, you know, when the summer comes back around, you can pick it back up and, you know, increase the size of it. So uh, it, it gives you a lot of flexibility as far as, uh, you know, scaling goes. Um, you can also host your, your phone system. I mentioned earlier that my phone is a, uh, you know, kind of a hosted phone system where, you know, it calls my office. If I'm not there, it brings my cell phone. Um, you know, I love it because, uh, you know, I'm out of the office a lot given the type of work that I do. Um, so it always rings to my cell phone and it's, uh, you know, I can be working on the beach if I want it to be, although that doesn't really happen nearly as often as I'd like. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have these hosted phone systems where, where again, you're not paying Verizon for your, uh, or, you know, whoever it may be, for your uh, phone service. Instead, you're paying this this hosted PBX company, basically. Um, you know, and, and the, the rates are actually uh, a little bit less for the uh, hosted PBX than they are for the uh, for the direct Verizon lines. Um, you know, business line for a hosted PBX, you know, might be like $25 a month, and that includes a free phone, so you don't have to go out, you know, say you're setting up an office and you, you know, have to have 10 users in that office. Um, you don't have to go out and buy 10 phones, you know, because the, the uh, host phone system, you pick up the host phone system, you get 10 users, you get 10 phones with it, you know, and you pay the uh, the regular, you know, line fee, which, uh, you know, like I said, is, is equivalent to Verizon's line fee, but you get the phone with it, you get the server that runs it in the background, you get things like uh, heads-up uh, caller ID right on your computer, you know, where, uh, you know, your, computer, your phone is next to your computer and you get a little pop-up box that tells you who's calling, um, you can use it for, uh, you know, even messaging between phones. You can use it for remote offices where, uh, you know, you might have like two or three users who are geographically spread out. You know, you can you can set them up as just another user on your network. And, uh, you know, when you want to transfer a call to them, it will just be like dialing an extension rather than, you know, having to transfer them or tell a caller to hang up and call back in the line. You can just transfer it right in as if they're in the next office, the next cubicle, you know. Um, so that's another way you can use the cloud computing. Um, and then the, the biggest way that people are using it these days is by not actually having physical servers on site. Um, there's really no need for it. Um, most companies have been using backup for a long time, and, uh, you know, most companies use things like uh, off-site backup where it's backing up through the Internet, and that's another cloud service. Um, you know, they, they can do backup through the Internet, but they can actually host your primary data through the Internet as well, um, you know, and just... Basically, you map your network drive to this cloud server, and, uh, you know, you can host all of your data out there rather than having it on your computer. The beauty of that is if you knock your computer off the desk and, uh, you know, it cracks in half, you can just get another one and connect to that same cloud, and it's like you never lost anything. Um, now, you know, can, you really, back up, can you back sure. up information stored on a, on a cloud? Like, for example, like something like, uh, I don't know, what's a, a good cloud-based service? Dropbox? Or pages yeah, there's, from, from there's, there's, um, there's Carbonite. Um, I, I'm actually a fan of Carbonite generally. The, the two big ones are uh, Dropbox and Carbonite. And, and, you know, I like Carbonite a little bit better. Um, you know, I think it's probably because I was exposed to that one first. Um, but they, they both work pretty well. Um, the nice thing about Dropbox is that, you know, you can just drop stuff into the, uh, the, the folder on your desktop and you just drop whatever you want in there and it, you know, goes to the cloud and it gets backed up. Um, Carbonite you tell it what directories to back up. You know, you want to back up your my documents or, uh, you know, my pictures, my videos, things like that. Um, and you can just tell it what to, what to back up, and then it just scans regularly for changes. You know, so if you delete a file or you add a file or whatever, um, you know, it'll, it'll just automatically take the, uh, the change. 
Um, the cool thing about that is that you can get that data from anywhere in the world, you know, again, with, with Dropbox as well. So, uh, you know, say you, you know, go to a meeting somewhere, you know, in another state or another country, and you forget the thumb drive that had the presentation on it. Well, you can just pull it off of your uh, your account from wherever you are. It doesn't matter. Um, right. You know, you can also work on that account as if you were working from your office. You know, that's the nice thing about the cloud computing. And the, the really nice thing about it is that you don't have all these startup costs. Um, you don't have to go out and buy a, a server. You don't have to... Uh, you know, get your network all set up. I mean, you have to have a network in your, your office, but you don't have to have, like, you know, this crazy firewall thing and all that. You can just have, you know, basic network with basic security and run that through to the, uh, you know, to the cloud servers. And it's as if you have a $20,000 server sitting in your closet, you know, but instead of having all of that plus all the electricity usage and the, uh, the heating and cooling costs of that, you don't have to worry about any of that. It takes care of it on the cloud. You could probably even get a, a computer that has a smaller hard drive and save some money because you don't need all that extra space. Right. Um, cloud. Yeah, the, the hard drive generally, um, you know, you're not using a whole, a whole lot of it for your actual programs. You're using most of it for storage, you know, whether you have a bunch of videos or some, some music and things like that. Those things take up a lot of storage, so uh, you're using your hard drive for that stuff. And uh, if you have the, the cloud... Um, you know, the cloud servers and things like that, and you're just storing your information up there, then you don't really have to worry about having a, a huge hard drive, um, you know, only for, for things that you'd want to run directly on your computer that, you know, you maybe have a, a video, a movie or something that you'd want to watch, you know, right on your computer. Well, then you need the hard drive. But, you know, you could always run, you know, these things off the cloud, and it would be like, you know, viewing things on YouTube. I mean, YouTube is a, a basic form of the cloud. You know, there's there's so many things stored on YouTube, and we access them every day through a, you know, through a little what's called a thin client where basically you have a, a little web interface that you're looking at and, uh, you know, it lets you view whatever you want off of that website. You know, and that's that's the same thing as the cloud. It works no differently than that. Gotcha. Okay. You know, except for that not everybody can access your cloud. You know, your cloud is, is personalized and it's got security on it, um, you know, and uh, if you go with a, a reputable company, you'd, you'd uh, be much better off with that. Of course, your security would be better. Right. All right, let's switch gears for a second. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Windows 8. I have a question here from somebody who purchased a new laptop that has Windows 8. They tried it, they don't understand it, and they want Windows 7 back. So they want to know if it's possible to put an older operating system on it, and how would they do that? Okay. Um, you know, the thing about Windows 8 is that it's really not a lot different. You know, the, the architecture behind Windows 8 is a complete departure from that of Windows 7. However, you know, from a user, you know, user experience, um, when you look at Windows 8, it looks wildly different, but it's really not that different. Um, they still have the, uh, the the start menu kind of, you know, everything is still there. It's just all in a different place. Um, so you just have to spend some time finding all your stuff again. You know, um, I know that's kind of tough, but uh, once you get used to Windows 8, there's nothing that it can't do that Windows 7 can. And there's a bunch of things that Windows 8 can do that Windows 7 can't. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, the start screen replaces the, the, uh, the start menu. Um, cascading menus, which are the kind that Windows 7 has, where you click on the start button and it opens up a, a list above you, and then you navigate across that, it opens up another list, you navigate across that, it opens up another list. list. That's a very difficult thing for people, even people who are very good with using mouse. 
Um, and if you're using a touch screen, it's almost impossible to do it. I'm sure you've tried it. You know, you, there's a drop-down menu somewhere on a website, and you, you hit it on your touch screen on your phone, and then you try to select the next thing, and you can't do it because it's, you know, it just doesn't work well for touch screens, you know. So Windows 8 eliminates that and, and uses the, uh, the tiles on the, on the main screen. That way you can just kind of scroll across and pick, what, you know, what you want. Um, the nice thing about Windows 8 is that you can um, just start typing when you're looking at that screen with all the files on it. Um, you can just start typing like WOR and Word will come up, you know. Um, or actually, Word and WordPad would come up. Uh, you know, you, there's not a text box to type in. You just start typing and it takes care of it. Um, there are some, some definite pluses to Windows 8, um, but again, it does take some getting used to. Now, that being said, if you wanted to uh, revert it back to Windows 7, you know, it can be done, um, but the problem is that, you know, you have drivers that are specific to your operating system. So depending on the computer, some of them come with software so you can go ahead and install Windows 7, you know, and that's great. And if you have that, then, you know, you're golden. You can go back to Windows 7, no problem. Uh, if you don't have that, then it becomes a little bit more tricky. Um, what you're talking about then is you're talking about, well, first of all, you have to buy a license for Windows 7 if you don't already have one. Um, you can't just copy over the existing operating system. You have to, you know, reinstall it. Uh, but the problem is because you don't have the drivers and things like that, then you're trying to, uh, you know, find drivers that are compatible, like, say, with your touchpad and your, your monitor and, uh, you know, your USB ports and things like that. Um, you have to have drivers that are compatible with the operating system. So, you know, an experienced tech could probably do it, but you're talking about a you know a fairly large expense labor-wise, um, and plus the you know license uh, for for Windows 7. So if you're not already backward licensed for Windows 7, in other words, it came with the disk that says, hey, if you want to install Windows 7, here's how to do it. Here's the disk. If you don't have that, then it's not really a simple a simple you know simple thing to do. It can be done. You know these are computers. You can pretty much do anything you want. You know given enough time and money, but uh, you know it's not really the a recommended thing to do, you know. Um, like I said, you can't just copy over it. You have to get all the drivers to, uh, to talk to the operating system correctly and things like that. Uh, it would be easier to, you know, maybe take an intro to Windows 8 class or something like that to learn the Windows 8 rather than to try to put Windows 7 back on the machine. And plus, then you're going backwards. You don't really ever want to go backwards. Um, you know, there was... Windows Vista, that was one of the cases where, you, you know, I would say, yeah, go backwards when, you know, before Windows 7 was out. But uh, but Windows 8 is pretty good, and, you know, it doesn't seem to be that many problems with it. Uh, it seems to be pretty stable. Uh, so I wouldn't recommend going backwards unless, you know, you absolutely have to because you have certain very high, you know, high-end expensive programs that won't run on the Windows 8. And, you know, then I would say, yeah, go ahead and do it. But, uh, you know, most of the time that's not really the case. I would say, you know, you're better off learning Windows 8 than reverting to Windows 7. Okay, that's good. Um, all right, we've got about five minutes left, so I want to get through some of these other questions, if possible. One of them, uh, it's a good question. At what point does a small business need to hire a full-time tech support person? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's not one that, that everybody will have the same answer to. Um, the Kind of the line seems to be about 50 users, um, but it depends on your definition of small, you know, whatever your definition of a small business. I mean, some people consider, you know, 200 people a small business. Well, that, that small business should surely have a full-time tech support person or multiple ones. Um, you know, I support offices that have up to 50 users um, without having a full-time tech on, on site. 
however, I've had clients, you know, with, with less users, maybe 45 or, or something like that, but they had specific requirements, like they couldn't have any downtime. You know, they, they were like a busy medical office where they had things going on all the time. They had doctors, they had patients, you know, they, they couldn't have the downtime. So they had an on-site tech, even though they were a little bit smaller. Um, you know, that tech tended to, uh, you know, spend a lot of his time unjamming printers and, uh, you know, replacing the batteries in a wireless mouse because it was, you know, acting up and things like that. Things, you know, that a lot of users, you know, take care of themselves. So it really just depends on, on you and your specific needs. But, uh, you know, like I said, around 50 users is, is somewhere around the line. Uh, where you sit, plus or minus that line, you know, depends on your specific requirements. Um, and, you know, and, and that's why companies like benefit. yours exist, though, because right. if you don't have the need for a full-time person, I mean, you're right, you get somebody sitting there all day, and unless you have con- kind of constant problems, that person's going to have nothing to do. That's where companies like yours come into play, because right. people can call you on a per-incident basis. Exactly. You know, and then yeah, they're and, not you know, paying if, if the overhead company, of the salary for you, for example. They're paying yeah, well, you know, for what you salary, do. You know, especially uh, in, a, in a situation like that, you know, basically we had a contract with this company, and, and uh, you know, so the, the tech salary was, was less than what they were paying us, which, of course, you know, included their, their medical and their benefits and their taxes and all that that, that we had to pay on top of it. Um, you know, so it, it's actually a really large expense to have somebody, you know, a full-time tech on, on site. Um, you know, even if you hire somebody directly, you still have um, a pretty decent overhead just for that, that tech. And, you know, again, like you said, if you don't have problems to give them, you know, pretty much on a constant basis, um, then it's really not worth doing. You know, they, it's, it's a less, you know, less per hour rate, obviously, when you have somebody on site like that. But, uh, you know, it's still, it, it's a, a pro and con. You have to kind of weigh out the, uh, the benefits and the, uh, the cost of it. Um, you know, it's not right for everybody, definitely not. Um, but around 50 users is, is really where you start thinking about that. Um, you know, if you get to the 40s and you feel like you're calling the computer guy all the time, then, you know, then maybe it's worth doing right then. Um, but, you know, some companies can get out to the, the 50s or 60s without, you know, without having that on-site tech because they, they have users that are fairly competent and capable of fixing their own things like printer jams. They open up the back door, they pull the piece of paper out, and they keep going. You know, um, but then you have companies that, you know, that don't have people like that. And, and certainly we understand that and, and we'll take care of uh, those customers. Um, but, you know, again, it's really up to you and your specific needs at your company, you know. Right, right. All right, let's see. We've got uh, about two minutes. So let's see if we can answer this one quickly. Uh, I have a, a small home office with two employees, and I'd like to restrict their access to certain sections of my server. Is there a way to do that that's not complicated? Um, yeah, there there is. Um, let me see if I can find my my little uh, notes on that. Um, basically, what it sounds like is they have the, sh- the server shared out to the to the whole you know the whole drive is shared out, which is generally not the way you share out a server. Um, when you when you share out things from a server, you share specific folders from that that server. When you organize it, you have uh, your directory structure. You have the C drive, and maybe you have a D drive on the server or things like that. Um, and you, you share out specific uh, drives, like you might share out the data drive or things like that, or you might share out the fax drive. That way all faxes that go there can be accessed by everybody. But you don't want to share out things like financials or payroll and things like that. You want to share them for specific users. Um, so basically, you want to, um, you know, in, in this particular case, if they have a, a server that's shared out to everybody, 
they want to go ahead and revoke those permissions and then go ahead and, and share out the specific folders that they want to share. So they have to go in, uh, you know, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but it will all be on the blog. But basically they go in and, and uh, you know, they, they go to the root of the drive, the C drive, and they can right-click on properties and go to sharing and security and, and revoke the permissions for everybody and then specifically hand them out to the specific users they want to hand them out to, like you know, the owner of the business or the, the payroll person or whatever it may be. Um, if they have two employees, then pretty much they want to just share it out to the employee, uh, to the owner, and then share out the data folders to the employee. Um, again, like okay. it's kind of difficult to explain, but I'll put it on the website, and then everybody can take a look there and follow along. You know. And then, if anybody has questions, they're always you know welcome to call you. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. Questions are always uh, answered for you. free. Yep. Okay, great. All right. Well, listen, we are running out of time, so I want to thank you, Chris, for being on again and for answering these questions. Uh, I think you did a great job. I think that it was very uh, helpful for the people that asked the questions. No problem. Like I appreciate to, you having me. Yeah, it was it was great. I'd like to um, just remind everybody listening that if you'd like to get more information on today's topic or have suggestions for future programs, give us a call at 973-949-3770 or toll-free at 855-NJ-LAW-01. So thanks again, Chris. And I'm sure we'll have you on the show again soon with some additional questions. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Peter. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Take care. Up to 70% off. That's right, at Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.